Okay, so I'm hoping this is working. I have had a million different technical difficulties. Um, for last month for MBA Book Club, we read um, we read this book. Oops, I guess I gotta go over to that screen. Hopefully, we still have sound. We read Basketball Analytics: Spatial Tracking. Um, by Dr. Stephen Shea. And as you can see, it has a very cool picture here. Um, it's from 2013. So um, it's a little outdated in terms of like the, the ideas. Some of them are still pretty fundamentally sound. It's a direct reaction and explanation and extrapolation to the implementation of sport view, sport VU. Um, which is like a series of cameras that were um, introduced by the NBA as a data tracking spatial analysis tool in 2013. Um, and this book talks about how it makes it possible to evaluate, you know, gather, evaluate um, the new stats that are generated from it. So I, the other analytics books that we've read, I think, are sort of also a reaction to this sport view concept. Now, 2013, you have to remember, is pre-Steph's record-breaking year. Um, it's pre-Golden State first championship. Um, and it's pre-Houston I think sprawl ball starts with that, the Houston Golden State comparison, right? Of like where they start making most of their shots either under the basket or at the three-point line. So this is is kind of pre that. He sort of predicts it. Um, but the the sport view part is really important and it's, it was the most interesting part in my mind. I still think this book is really worth reading. It's a very easy read. Um, as long as you don't, like, there are parts where he, he, like, lays out how to, like, form your own um, models and build your own models to do, like, player evaluation. And I mean, that stuff's good. It's probably still relevant. I didn't do any of that. Um, uh, you know, and it took up a lot of the the uh um a couple of the chapters of where he would go on these long you know sort of explanations of how you can build and manipulate models to either do things like develop your own uh single uh number metric like you know an rapm type thing again i didn't do any of that i i don't you know, since 2013 to now, there's like so many of them. There's like LeBron and Raptor and whatever, all the ones RAPM and luck adjusted. And I don't think any of them are that great. Um, although you can pull up like an RAPM sheet and put it next to like a salary sheet and see that it holds some water, right? So anyways, so I don't want to go too long. I shouldn't even say that because then I just end up going really long. I'm not, I'm hoping that I'm getting sound here. So like I said, the main thing is it's, um, it's, um, 
it's about this sport view uh, data collection and then how we learn from spatial analysis can influence non-spatial studies and how to merge the new and old information to provide objective and efficient strategies for understanding the game of basketball. So he talks a lot, uh, you know, about, I mean, he doesn't say this specifically, but I believe that SportView is responsible for like the, you know, generation of um, accurate shot charts, for instance. Um, and he, he does talk a lot about efficiency, um, you know, versatility, that kind of thing, which, which you can uh understand based on shot charts you know so there's a lot of new um statistics that are generated through the sport view that go beyond just the box score so um let me see here He talks about it goes into like the the kind of history of analytics in the in the league and which we've also read in all of the other analytics books that we've read essentially so it's like you know dean oliver um but the point that he makes here which i think is really interesting and which also may have been made in some of the other books is just that the analytics movement started as a civilian movement outside of the confines of like the team model um and it so it was like open source so many people could weigh in and tweak things and have conversations about it and stuff like that but as it grew um teams and the nba started viewing it as as um you know effective as a great tool and so they started hiring a lot of these people and therefore cutting off their um, contribution to the to the general pool, right? Because they were all of a sudden now dealing with team information. Um, so that was pretty interesting. I think there's probably like a good mix of both things at this point. Um, he really talks a lot about this efficiency. So it gives Dean Oliver and John Hollinger a lot of credit for sort of this modern birth of analytics pre three point revolution. Although, like I said, he really does um, predict the three point revolution in this book. Um, I think if you had read this book in 2013, you'd be like, wow, you know, however, nowadays, most of these um, concepts are total basketball groups like concepts. I mean, um, it's is stuff that people like Zach Lowe or, you know, Ben Taylor, all those kind of people like say in normal basketball analysis. So anyways, so, so he talks a lot about efficiency, right? Points per possession. So again, Thinking basketball, this was like a massive thing in thinking basketball too, PPP. I think it's been in, you know, sprawl ball, mid-range theory, spaced out. Like it's it's been um, major, you know, this is how 
this is the main way that basketball has grown, right? And then you look at this year of the best player in the league um, in Jokic, and his efficiency is absolutely off the chart. I think somebody put a, a scatter chart out today that, you know, has him up here and everyone else is down here. So, um, you know, this is absolutely an impact of analytics, right? And especially spatially analytics because coaches, you know, um, GMs um, can build teams so that they have a team that is getting the most efficient points per possession possible. Um, <clears throat> so both offensive and defensive. So here we can make firm some definitions, such as whether or not we want to consider an offensive rebound as starting a new possession or simply a continuation of the previous possession. Um, so he has a lot of like really interesting, you know, conceptual um, ideas. He has a lot of like terminology that he um, abbreviates. So I got a little like when I was looking back over it, I was like, oh, I don't remember what IPE stands for or all this stuff, but whatever, we'll do our best here. So production and content context, quantity, efficiency, single number, catch-all invention, attempts, and PPP. So again, this is mostly like, what are the best shots in the game? Under the basket, corner threes, right? Um, driving efficiency is a major predictor of overall offensive efficiency. So he has all these things that he talks about. So driving efficiency, obviously you're going to the basket. Again, those are under the basket shots. Um, and then he, his the, the data that's generated defensively is almost all centered around rim protection, right? I mean, theoretically, in one way or another, even, even perimeter defense is, is rim protection. I mean, it's protecting against a basket. <laughs> but this is really specific to rim protection, like blocks um, and effective field goal uh, percentage with someone in the game and out of the game. So he has this whole thing in chapter six where he tries to determine the real value of the rim protector uh, for better or worse. So production and context. So under each category, there are four still somewhat broad subcategories chosen specifically for player statistics, but generally still relevant for team metrics. So again, he's really, really... Um, into efficiency and i think rightfully so and then the contexts are you know usage so how 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 much of the outcome is the player in charge of you know did their actions result directly in a basket in the um you know or in helping that basket you know was it an assist was it etc but then they also like using this sport view they can extrapolate even further out than that so you have cool statistics like assist before the assist you know and that kind of thing uh let's see talks a lot about consistency um uses michael carter williams here as an example of an inefficient player so even though his production numbers looked fantastic in his rookie year. 
he the team that he was on was not a good team so you know these are this is all like the empty stats thing right is there was no other options so he was his usage was extremely high his production was high but his efficiency was just not good so as far as like fitting into a new situation where he had less responsibility of the usage it just didn't translate well right um and then obviously your teammates so do you have a lot of you know I, again like i keep thinking of this in terms of the thinking basketball book too um where ben taylor talks about <clears throat> you have facilitator fred and iso isaiah right so which one is 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 causing a better outcome for your team um and so obviously teammates matter right are they facilitators do you have playmakers are playmakers you know um helping their teammates be more efficient um and then obviously who you're playing against so defense matters um and then the situ situation matters as well. So good team, bad team, uh, playoffs, regular season, all that stuff. Um, so new spatial tracking tells us that opponents shot 48.5 um, against the Thunder and 55 against the Ma against the Mavericks. So right, the Thunder had a better defense, better rim protector uh, than the Mavericks did. <clears throat> so again, PB score, I can't totally remember what that means. Oh, it's like, it's, um, it's the performance in the clutch. Uh, let's see if it has its, so a league shot 45 in non-clutch, but only 40.4. So this is like, again, in thinking basketball, he talks about this in the sense that um, in clutch situations, you tend to like go to your stars, go to your most consistent and reliable players. And the playmaking tends to be more isolation heavy, therefore efficiency goes down. Now, whether those efficiency numbers are gradually climbing up since 2013, which I suspect is true, um, I don't, but I didn't look them up, so I don't know. But I can definitely say that De'Aaron's this year were higher than this, much higher, right? Um, <clears throat> which was what was so fantastic about what he was doing. And then I think, like, towards the end of the year, we started seeing Malik get added into that. And I did not look at Malik's efficiency in the clutch numbers. But I think that might be worth looking at as well, because if you could have those two... Uh, because then you have versatility and variety in that those clutch minutes as well. So you have two closers. And then even like Keegan in Summer League um, was a clutch player, right? So that, that last like five minutes of every game, he just would like stomp on the gas. And so I think that could be a really interesting development next year for the Kings team. Um is Keegan, De'Aaron, and Malik in the clutch? Like, can, can they just become, you know, extreme closers? That would be amazing. Um, so 
so the PB is is basically your efficiency um, and how much you alter your offense in that clutch time. So it's PB measures the extent to which a team distributes the scoring relative to how they distribute the minutes. Um, so it's basically, so let's see. Often this means that the star, whether it's Carmelo, LeBron, Duran, or Love, will be given the ball in ISO. So some guys are good at this and some guys aren't, right? And I, I mean, I think like there's so many definitions of star in this league, um, but like you can use Jimmy probably as a great example of this, where he's so great in clutch time most of the time, but even most of like statistics in basketball are so complicated and confusing because even the best shots are often not even 50% sometimes, you know? So same with clutch time efficiency, like anything above like 45% is fantastic. Uh, anyways, be, be all that as it may. I mean, he goes on to talk about Kevin Love and how that situation in uh, Minnesota, Minnesota was not um, working out partially because Kevin Love was their biggest star, but he didn't have that second gear in clutch. He didn't have the ISO post moves to take over the game in those last minutes. So their clutch time um, rating or efficiency was so low that they just couldn't win games that way. So, and then um, this to me was, so he talks a lot about the Miami team. So the LeBron, Dwayne Wade, uh, Miami team. Um, and he talks here about, he said, said a lot of really interesting things about it, but um, he talks about bottom-up and top-down metrics. So NBA.com's player tracking statistics include many new bottom-up metrics, such as assist, the assist before the assists. So that's second assists. Um, assist to free throws. Passes to a player that is fouled and makes at least one free throw, touches, passes, time of possession, and distance traveled, right? This is one that I've seen used lately quite a bit, the distance traveled. Um, and then top down is that that only uses the production of lineups as a whole, and then bottom up is individual, right? So the best known example uh, for top down is plus minus. Um and then obviously, I mean, in some ways, top down is the only thing that really matters, right? I mean, you can you can like geek out on how many points somebody scores, how many like you can geek out on Nikola Jokic's numbers all you want, but unless they're winning with enough help from other guys, it's it's pointless, right? I mean, then you get into that empty stats category again. So um uh, let me see i kind of forgot my point there um oh the days off is correlated so he talked so he's he says that they did an evaluation of um of lebron and Dwayne wade's uh speed in on and off days 
And as if they didn't, if they got at least one day off, their speed was like way faster. Right. So that gives you an odd. So I, I just thought that was an interesting because I've often wondered, especially since I watched the Kings who almost always have the worst um, outcome of back-to-backs that there are schedule-wise. Um, I've often wondered like how that affects guys' legs, how that affects their advantage and in what ways. And I think this is a really interesting um, specific way that it does is that it affects their speed and it affects their win percentage. And I could really see that, especially for De'Aaron, who was playing so many minutes. I think there were games where like his legs looked dead. And I think that the, um, you know, the three point specialists um, probably like not Harrison so much during the regular season, but Keegan for sure, which we expect because he's a rookie. So you always hit a wall and I think that wall is that dead leg, um, you know, where you just, you don't have the legs to get those shots up. And then, and then Herder actually said that he hit that wall. So let's see. So whether a player sets the screen away from the ball to free his teammate for a donker is the player to catch the alley-oop and throw it down a top-down metric like plus-minus will give him credit for the positive contribution. Plus-minus, like I think we know at this point, it can be a little deceiving because basically if you blow another team out, your plus-minus can be off the charts. I mean, is it accurate? Sure, it is. I mean, you can also, like, I think, again, like, the Kings are such an interesting um, case study because, like, you can say, oh, starters and bench. However, when you go back and, like, look at the actual lineups, like, go to the popcorn.com thing where he compiles all the different lineups, you see that, like, you know, by, I think, the eighth game or whatever, that that. They were staggering DeMontis and um, and De'Aaron and then trying to, like, add in shooters and, add, you know, add in and take out shooters, right? So the majority, I mean, again, I haven't looked this up and I haven't written it down, but I think you can go and look and see probably um, DeMontis and Davion played a similar amount of minutes as De'Aaron and DeMontis did, that kind of thing. Or, like... Um, De'Aaron and Chemezi played a lot of minutes together. And probably Chemezi's plus minus, which is pretty, you know, especially post All-Star, um, Chemezi's plus minus was pretty good. Like that bench group. Um, but he's playing with De'Aaron. So De'Aaron, we know, is a great facilitator. He's also a great shot maker. Um, and he's also... He, you know, I mean, especially De'Aaron's like so good at in the beginning of the game being a facilitator and then switching over to being that scorer and in, in that those, the fourth quarter, essentially. Um, so anyways. And then like it, he goes into all these these different the RAPM stuff, single metrics that approximate player contribution are valuable. They work well for studies of player performance in certain situations. 
such as no day's rest or for understanding the typical value gained by draft position. However, no team will ever sign or draft a player based on his score. So, um, and no analyst should stop the investigation of a player's performance at such a number. I think all of these books, like, you know, have made this point in multiple ways is that analytics should not be the singular thing that you're using to evaluate players, to um, determine lineups, to do any of the stuff. Like eye test is equally, if not more important. I mean, these analytics help you eval evaluate your scheme, um, you know, and they can add information to that eye test thing. To, you use it more like a prove or disprove kind of thing when you can when you look up. Um, so in 2013-14, the team with more points per possession won 96.7% of games when the difference in points per possession was at least 0.5 or 5 points per 100 possessions, which was the case in over 80% of games. The teams with more points per possessions won 100% of the time. So he makes that point. I wish I could find, he talks about pace and how important it is to know the pace of the game, not how important pace is, but how important to know the pace of the game when you're extrapolating these statistics, because some games could be whatever, like 89 to 90, some games could be 115 to 120. So what are you looking at when you're looking at that production, right? Um, The top third, so he does talk about defense. I think defense is sticky and in, in kind of all of these books. I found like spaced out to have such a great, um, I think his, his kind of definition and discussion about defense, as well as Pete Carrell's. Pete Carrell's book is so interesting because it's just like these little, these little pithy kind of, you know, philosophy paragraphs, basically. Um, but they both make the point that defense is cumulative, right? That it is so tiring somebody out, dead legging them, making, making them work. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the general way that it's termed, I think, um, adds up by the end of the game, right? So you're taking their legs away. So they are unable to mount that clutch time comeback. Um, so he and he talks a little bit and then i think you know the spaced out book also talked about the 80 20 rule and that kind of thing so defense is only like i mean i think it's for me it's easier to think about it has like 20 percent impact on the game as a whole right i mean you can affect another team to a certain extent there it's like so rare that you have uh, cases like i mean i've seen a couple times where davion has gotten into somebody, especially younger players, and they kind of give up <laughs> like in the first quarter or whatever. But that is insanely rare. I feel like most people want to see that defensively. Um, but, you know, what defense really is, is making them work a lot harder for the points that they're getting. So, or having somebody like Steph Curry or Devin Booker 
not have the legs by the end of the game to be able to finish out, you know, at their normal rate of efficiency. Um, so last season, defensive efficiency was a better predictor of win percentage than offensive efficiency. So you have to play some defense, right? I mean, this gets really complicated because how do you win a basketball game? You score more points. So again, like you can only limit so many points. Um, so this could be taken as evidence that defense is more important than offense. Um, and then over and over analysts pleaded that teams should be judged not by how many points they score or allow, but by their production per opportunity. So that all makes sense. Um, I still think that like saying something like, um, you know, defense wins championships is overkill, right? You like you have to have a good enough defense to win a championship. I think like defense for me, which is sort of my pet, um, it's my favorite side of the floor. It's what I like watching the most right now. Um, you know, I think I think it's being innovated more now than it has been in a really long time, like doing the box and one stuff. Although we've also seen like a ton of zone in the last year, especially, I would say. Um, I think you could go before that. Um, and I think you can make the case with this last playoff run that the better defensive team did not win, right? I mean, the Nuggets, there was a lot of made about their fifth game defense, but they just played timely defense. So I guess that's what I'm the point I'm trying to get to is timely defense also matters. Um, and then so he goes on again, like the driving efficiency, the corner threes, these are the, the best uh, efficiency shots there are in the game. He talks a lot about Daryl Morey in here, who's sort of dork Elvis, who you know, has this lineage of, um, you know, now GMs and, um, I mean, some of them may be washed out, but, you know, Sam Presti, Monty McNair, um, who's in, who's in Minnesota. That's, that's the assistant GM. Um, he just, he has a lot of, um, Sam Hinkey was one of, um, um, and I built to lose is another book that I rarely cite, but it's actually also like I think really relevant as far as like the story side a lot of a lot of this and like this sort of like analytics development that um, spawned this kind of process uh, theory and all of that kind of stuff. So I mean, this is kind of right when that stuff was happening, uh, but 2013 is sort of in the thick of it, right? With the, um, with the Sloan, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, Dorka Palooza, um, and just the the stat geeks. Like nowadays, I I don't think uh, you know. I think it it's really fashionable too for like the old heads to say like, oh, whatever, like statistics, schmatistics, like I can tell what we're doing anyway. Um, you know, but um, again, like I said, this this efficiency, uh, 
concept, I think, is has been hammered home quite a bit. And he talks later in here about the disaster in Detroit, um, which was a team that was built basically not using any modern statistics and just adding a bunch of good players in that maybe would have been fantastic in you know, the early 90s or whatever, but that ended up winning 29 games because there was zero spacing, right? So he talks about the, the corner threes, and then um, he does talk about the effect of spacing, right? Um, which again, you know, is in every sprawl ball, mid-range theory, all of these things. And then I think it's really reached ahead now where if you can't shoot a three, it starts becoming really problematic as far as like, I think we saw Davion not play very much in those last two playoff games um, because they opted for like a more, you know, offensively efficient lineup, which... Uh, it's just so hard to say, like, even on paper sometimes, what is more efficient, especially since there's that cumulative element of, like, getting to that fourth quarter and it, are you wearing somebody out? Are you making it harder for them, you know? Um, so he this this i found really interesting because he sort of predicts like the houston team so it's entirely possible that a team could redesign its strategy to decrease mid-range shots and increase three-point attempts that is exactly what's happened so um if the recent trends continue 2014-15 could be the first in which teams take more three-pointers than mid-range jump shots Oh, yes, um, that did happen. I think Houston did have a year where their shot charts were primarily under the basket and perimeter. Although I do also think that like, and I tried to find this article, but I couldn't find it. But one of the Clippers beat writers wrote a really great article about modern defense and how the mid-range and, um, you know, three-point shots that are beyond the uh, perimeter are getting more and more popular because they're not being guarded. Um, and I think that, I'm trying to remember which book it's in, I think it's in, in Spaced Out, where he talks a lot about DeMar DeRozan and how his mid-range efficiency has become more and more effective, not just because he's become more and more effective, but because defenses are more spread out and they're not always, you know, he is not always the focal point as far as what's being guarded um and then you to a certain extent you have to chase down these corner threes right because they're pretty high efficiency shots um and they're worth more than a two as pete crow would say um so it goes into a little uh prize details on two types of jump shots catch and shoots and pull-ups so this is like, you know, can you create for yourself? You know, that's like the buzzword right now. Um, catch and shoots mean no dribbles, right? So I think a lot of people were like looking at Sasha and being like, well, can he create for himself? Like we know he's a good, good, good at catch and shoots. There's a lot made out of him not having to dribble. So um, those those kind of statistics, you know, I think we talk about all the time now, but, you know, prior to this 
the spatial data um, analysis, you know, they weren't as readily available. He does talk about Damar in here as well, but he's really skeptical of him. And, you know, he talks about how Damar's game is um, outdated, essentially. Um, and and he does talk he also talks about exceptions like Dirk Nowitzki let me see here no surprise a team with Nowitzki an elite mid-range shooter that spoils the model so but you know being but uh, being elite there's always outliers right so you have to allow for those outliers um and this is where I think he, he talks about how um, he talks a lot about LeBron in here as an outlier. I mean, we know LeBron is a great three-point facilitator, which that's from Sprawl Ball where he does that deep dive on um, on LeBron's development and um, as a facilitator and adaptation. Um, and he does make the point in here, which I, again, I thought was interesting, that that Miami team was more effective if they added shooters around LeBron. So, for instance, the plus minus of the team was a lot better if Dwayne Wade and LeBron were not on the floor at the same time. Um, but, again, just, just interesting. Uh, Tim protection. So, and then playoffs. Playoff pace and efficiency. So, you know, playoffs get slower. Uh, Clippers, Trailblazers, and Warriors with only three teams to play faster in the playoffs than in the regular season. Again, this is 2013. Oh, cat. Um, uh, and I think we heard the um, this year from the Kings, at least, we're not going to slow down. We're going to play just as fast. We're going to still try and score 120 points. Um, and let's see. He talks about the Spurs, which I don't know that they have been such like the dynastic superpower in in this, you know, three-point revolution era. Um but they definitely like take advantage of versatility. And they were good in 2013. So um, that's funny. For most teams that that shooting rate would not be sustainable, but the Spurs are an ordinary team. They led the league by shooting 39.6 on above the break threes during the regular season. I think that percentage has gone up. Uh, so so then he, he talks a lot about uh, players' cost, value, and investment. So he he talks about their skills. He talks about their cost in terms of assets you give up for them, right? You use a pick on them or uh, trade, whatever you're going to trade. Then you pay for their contract. Um, and then you hope that they value in my mind is is like what are they adding to the team as far as you know again plus minus which is such a dumb stat but are they making their teammates better are they a single skill um player 
quantity of production, such as points scored to a balance awareness of quantity and efficiency. Uh, so, um, and then the investment part um, is, again, like, I think it's so important. It's like, sort of like, think of like basketball in some ways as like an iceberg, right? And you can see the top of the iceberg, but you can't see the rest of it that's underneath the water. Um, so he talks about investment as far as like, what are you going to have to put in to develop guys, to support them, to make them better or make them fit in your system. And then also like, I mean, as kind of a side note here, um, he talks a little bit about character as far as like, are you bringing someone in that, that you can, I hate the word control, but that you know what you're getting character wise, that's not going to like, I don't know, um, you know, get in trouble basically. Um, and then they're all functioning under the salary cap. So uh, players cost is not a simple matter to ascertain. Players have costs in actual salary per season. That salary eats up a part of the salary cap and thus has a cost in reduced flexibility for the organization. They have a cost in the team's commitment and salary long-term, depending on the length of the contract. Players also have a cost in that they occupy a roster position and a certain amount of playing time. Um, players can have a cost to acquire them beyond the financial commitment. If the player's under contract for another team, acquiring him might need trading draft picks. Finally, certain players have a cost for their lack of character reflected through an on and off court antics. So are they going to miss games? Are they going to be good teammates? Is there going to be vibes, you know, et cetera? Um, let me see. So he talks a lot, ton about Rudy Gay, kind of caps on Rudy Gay as being like a not very efficient player. Um, but then he sort of turns it around a little bit and talks about how Rudy is very versatile. And I think this versatility argument is a really important one when juxtaposed against the efficiency one, because, um, you know, he sort of compares, like, I don't know if he directly compares, um, let's see, Rudy Gay was 19th in the league in points per game last season among players with at least 50 games played. DeRozan was 10th. Those are oppressive accomplishments, or are they? So, again, I think most Sacramento fans are pretty familiar with the fact that there was like three guys on those teams, right? Uh, I may be misstating, but I believe it was like Isaiah, Rudy, um, DeMarcus, and not a lot else was happening um, as far as usage, right, on those teams. I mean, you could say you had, I don't even think, I don't even know if Omri was here. Um, it, you know, I should have pulled the roster, but I didn't. But anyways, um, and the point that he's making is that the points per possession of these guys were below average efficiency, right? Um and what is, what is their workload, right? So that's another way I kind of think of efficient, of usage is, is how much of the um, end result are they responsible for? Um, 
And I think that's why most teams have, you know, try to have at least two stars. Oh, let me see. So, um, so he talks about the value of Rudy to Sacramento. And he says, like, he says you have to take into consideration the, the market and that Sacramento basically says Sacramento is a shitty market. They don't they don't attract free agents. And so Rudy is probably more valuable to Sacramento than to another team. Then he he also like gives Rudy some props in that he says that Rudy has, you know, he he has versatility in the sense that he can make um you know, under the basket shots, he has a bag as far as like mid range, and then he can also make perimeter shots. So that might be more valuable as far as like a team makeup than just having like JJ Redick, you know, um, which not to pinpoint JJ Redick, but you always know what JJ Redick is going to do. Having somebody that you don't know what they're going to do, whether they're going to pull up, whether they're going to catch and shoot, um, and where is harder to guard so um i see here i don't want to go too far into rudy gay but it was i'm always excited when there's kings in these things too um this is why some teams do not value gay at the same level as sacramento uh with 24 npt and ioe all these like acronyms i don't know would have generated 33.88 points and he didn't do that or 4.7 4.7 more points per game um this ioe i think is is a facilitator evaluation um which takes into consideration uh you know attempted assists and stuff like that um because assists are inherently you're relying on somebody else to bolster your stats, right? You only get an assist if they make the basket. Uh, so fit, complement, gravity. I think he, he talks about Andre Iguodala a little bit in here, which I think was I thought was really interesting. Is like for some reason this year where there was that weird conversation that like, oh, Andre Iguodala didn't deserve the impact. VP in 2015 or whatever it was. And it's like, yeah, he kind of did. I mean, did you watch that series? Like he was freaking amazing. Um, he, um, and Andre Guadalupe was first with a 1.36 IPE benefited from having very good three point shooting teammates in Golden State. This is not to take uh, much away from Iguodala's mark is high, even for having such talented teammates. It's simply an acknowledgement of context. But, it, but you do have to give guys some credit for utilizing their gravity well, especially in order to kick out, right? Um, and having good three-point shooting around you is great. They did use Andre Iguodala as a playmaker to a certain extent, even in somewhat limited minutes, but he was awesome in that um I think it was 2015. Um, our measure of scoring efficiency, ISE, does a good job in measuring the efficiency of players who are primarily asked to score, such as Durant. 
dogs. Sorry. Luca. Um, so versatility, consistency, predictability. I kind of just talked about that. I don't think there's a need to go too far back into that. Is I mean, consistency is also is is very important. I mean, um, he talks a lot about Kyle Korver here, which whom we know is one of the greatest shooters of all time. Um, Kyle Korver had a higher ISC than LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Dirk Nowitzki. JJ Redick had a higher ISC than James Harden. Steph Curry and Kevin Love. This does not mean that an NBA team can thrive with Korver or Redick as their primary offensive option. So it's just really important to find that balance of skills um, and skill sets that complement each other. Um, and then obviously, like, um, he talks about consistency again later in terms of like um, college uh, rookies and stuff like that and how much their consistency goes up after like the first year in college, after the first year in the league. Um, and if, for me, that's like one one thing I really hope for Keegan is that he can get that a little bit higher. Or like even if you do like a chart of somebody's uh, points per night per game, right? It, you can see that for the most part, it's the stars who are consistent, you know, in, again, situation, road games, home games. Um, and that was something that the Kings really struggled with early in the season, I think, was having those role players, role playing shooters um, step up in those away game situations, even though they ended with a really good away game um, record. There were a couple games where you're like, oof, like that, that's just not there. It's not happening. Like you can tell in the first quarter that like, since nobody can make a shot, it's just not, there's not spacing enough on the floor. Um, um, and to the Kings credit, they were able to overcome that this year in a way that they haven't been in years past. Um, and I give a lot of that credit to De'Aaron for sure. Uh, so if a player is highly um, versatile and scores approximately 25% of his points from each of the four scoring types, then it would be challenging to predict where the players next 20 points from the floor will come from. So that versatility I think is, is um is really important because it, it makes guys harder to guard it creates opportunities for other guys right so like if you have um andre Iguodala in the lane you have to guard him so um and if he's getting too far into the lane you may want to double him so does that open somebody else up that kind of thing um and then this is just, again, in every single book we've read, it, they've talked about this evolution of, of, of skill set, right? Now, I mean, you could go back and like say like guys like Bill Walton, um, you know, what was so special about some of those kind of guys was that they had, they had guard skills um, at a big man position kind of thing. Um, but what they're saying here is that there's a diversification 
and um, evolution of guys at every position having different skill sets that are not normally native to their position. So um, what's really important is to build a team with the appropriate skill sets over trying to build like, I'm going to have a one, two, three, four, five team with my rim protector and my this guy and my that guy. Like, no, you might be able to find rim protection at the forward position. You might, you know, so, um, uh, and you want to try and avoid being predictable. Again, I think this goes into like the thinking basketball. You had those two charts, the, the Spurs chart, which had somebody different as the leading scorer every single night. But then number two was always Tim Duncan, right? Um, and then comparing it to the Minnesota chart with Kevin Garnett, where Kevin Garnett was always the leading scorer every single night. So it's just way easier to defend a team like Minnesota who is always going to the same person over and over and over again than to defend Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker and who, you know, Boris Diaw, like whoever you want to choose, that's going to be that main scorer. Um, and uh, that's one of my favorite charts that looking at, I didn't pull any charts from, from this book. I would say, I wish that like analytics books made more of a, a point of having like huge colorful visualizations because they're such a big part of what they're discussing and then like in especially digital books like they're just tiny and you have to like double click on them or like expand them and it's it kind of sucks and it's a pain in the butt and i actually really enjoy visualization so anyways that's just my own peccadillo um so shooting, positioning, and then like the disaster in Detroit thing, it's like an Andre Drummond um, um, team build that just did not work. Um, sport view data was also used for passes per touch, rebound chances, opponent field goal percentage at the rim, and opponent field goals attempts at the rim. As a reminder, all of the necessary statistics to build these metrics can be found at nba.com. Um, so I, I love this because this is such an, a cool set of statistics that are um, theoretically evaluating, um, you know, a bottom-up statistic for individual players that does not include their um, their teammates' uh, um, impact on their game, right? So, um, additionally, like I would say that you know, since this was written in 2013, a lot of the links were broken. And, um, but the main set of statistical um, developments are still obviously on nba.com and basketballreference.com. And just a lot, a lot of the like just civvy sites are, are shut down or like, you know, guys got hired to teams and they had to shut their sites down or it's just old. Um, so that was kind of a bummer not to be able to ES also ESPN has, um, 
archived all the Grantland stuff. So that was really interesting to look at. Uh, and let's see. Um, so he just he talks about like floor split it, spreading to a certain extent. Um, And he talks about this, the Orlando team, the Van Gundy Orlando team, which I highly recommend watching the Up and Smoke with Jason Williams, where um, uh, they they also talk about this team with Dwight Howard. Um, and they happen to, to space the floor with three-point threats. Um, that reminded me a lot of, like, Jerry talking about the Sacramento Kings in 2002, was somebody was like, well, why do you shoot so many three pointers? And they're like, cause that's, cause our guys are good at them. <laughs> like, so that's kind of what Stan Van Gundy had said about that team is like, I have guys who can shoot that shot. So why wouldn't I? And it's not like an intense kind of analytics evaluation. It's just like that threes are worth more than two. This guy makes them at a great rate. That's what we're going to do. Not only that, but it gives everyone else in the light, you know, in the, in the, um, in the half court, more room to function, more room to facilitate, more room to make, make assists, more room to kick out, more room to set screens, more room to roll, more room to back cut, you know. So, um, again, spaced out, great book to read about that. Um, and this, let's see, Detroit had 403, three uh, field goal attempts that regular season. The Lakers had 667. Um, see how far the NBA has come in its use of three-pointers. And so that 2013-14, the championship Spurs took 1,757. Um, and I'm sure it's way higher now. Um, so and he's talking about Joe Dumars. And Joe Dumars was, you know, obviously part of that hard hat piston team that won a championship without spacing really i mean they had like a couple shooters like tayshaun prince or whatever but um you know they just they just played bully ball and it worked so when he went to go build a team he just rebuilt that team to a certain extent same thing i think vlade was always trying to rebuild the 2002 team you know um he did it in a weird way. He wasn't, you know, hugely successful, but I think you could see the outline of what he was trying to do. Um, and this, the decline of offensive rebounding with three point percentage. Um, you tell us a lot about that. I thought that was really interesting because it's something that, you know, I mean, okay. The Kings rebounding percentage was so weird this year. Like during the regular season, they'd have horrible games and they'd have, then they'd like, talk a lot about it, emphasize it, you know, again, like Pete Carell says, like, uh, you're good at what you emphasize. So they'd like, you know, Mike Brown would come out and be like, oh my God, we need more rebounds. Um, and then they'd be great the next night. Um, and Domas was consistently great. He wasn't as great in the playoffs, which I felt like, I just feel like there's some element of rebounding that needs to to get um like we need a consistent rebounder right like we have consistent scores we have a bunch of guys who can get 30 points on any given night 
do we have a bunch of guys who can get 10 rebounds on any given night? Um, and I would say that there's room for improvement there. You know, I mean, um, obviously you need more from guys. You need two-way players. You need more more skill sets from guys than just rebounding. But I'm not opposed to, to trying to slot in, like, just a super skilled rebounder. Um, and and give Tomas – Tomas is fantastic at, at it. But when he's playing against someone like Kevon Looney, he has to be – he has to box out. Come on, right? I mean, there were times when I saw like Davion box out under the basket and stuff like that. But overall, Kings seem to be better at boxing out and trying to grab rebounds. However, I, I just found this really fascinating um, because he talks about why this has gone down positionally, right? Rebounds are longer. Guys are not in position to get them. And um, additionally, the fast break is more prevalent than it's ever been, right? So guys are getting in position to run rather than rebound. Um, and uh, I just think you could slot in or develop somebody like like a Kessler who, who is, you know, hey, you're captain of rebounds, man. I mean, you're starting that fast break. I think there were a couple times that like KZ – or Kessler were doing that successfully and where those fast breaks were just running. Like there was a couple times with bench minutes where they were playing so fast. It was like almost hard to process how fast they were playing and nobody had time to set anything up. So they, you know, uh, they could have been slightly more efficient with the, um, with dunking for sure. Like I think everybody could have been, better dunkers. But it's part of the reason why I love bringing Chemezi back because he's like the only vertical threat. And I think he's so good in those kind of like fast break situations. Um, even though I bet his his rim percentage, you know, is not fantastic. Um, so anyways, okay. So like I said, rebounding's been going down for everyone. I mean, I think, again, like going small, too, that's one thing that this book doesn't really talk about is that evolution of, of playing like centers like Draymond, um, you know, doing that kind of thing where you don't have, he does talk about like the slow-footed bigs and um, you just don't have this kind of like stationary rim protection that you used to have in a, on a lot of teams. Like the, the best rim protectors are more like guys like uh, Jared Jackson or who, who have this ability to like also get out on the fast break, um, who are extremely athletic. Um, you can't afford to have a center who's going to like, just rotate in and out of the lane and try and be in position for every rebound. Um, you know, unless they're also making threes or, or what have you. Uh, let's see. DD. Let's see. He talks about floor spacing. Uh, we find floor spacers. All players that have played at least 820 minutes made at least 53 pointers. Um, and had a three-point percentage of at least 37%. Um, so he talks about how important that space is. And I think the league has taken that to heart. You need to have 
your de you need to have their defense spread way out again like this year more than any year that i can remember they just play zones a lot of the time um to address this um you know i mean you have a really great guys or like the the box and davion <laughs> that the kings played a couple times and i was like oh my god what is happening um but where like you know guys like draymond or davion can like guard every single perimeter player um you know how effective it is is questionable because because davion's small but i still you know a lot of those possessions and they were limited they were very limited numbers so it's a small sample size but a lot of those possessions ended up in turnovers or missed shots so um uh here opponents field goal percentage at the rim is the rim protection statistic tracked by sport vu and available at nba.com is particularly appropriate because it only counts opponents shots at the rim when a defender is within five feet of the shooter so i think this is really interesting because we make so much out of blocks and um blocks are fun blocks are exciting i mean i think it was in breaks of the game kermit washington said that he knew that blocks were one of the most exciting things you could see in a basketball game because you it's like the ballet of basketball of having two guys you know meet and battle in the air and um but they make the he makes the case in this book which i think is is really accurate it's just really about effective field goal percentage um deterrence right blocks are cool blocks are fun blocks are part of that blocks don't always result in a possession for your team um, and they happen so infrequently the same with steals but the point that he makes here and i've always been really skeptical of blocks but i he sort of swayed me a little bit is that they're a good indicator of the hustle um, and the overall effective field goal percentage uh deterrence right same with steals it's not it's not necessarily the steal or two steals or three steals it's the indication that somebody is absolutely hustling on defense and causing like I, the team would always talk about deflections right it's not the steal it's did you limit their shot making um and then he talks about the Hibbert, Larry Sanders, Kendrick Perkins, long been known for their interior defense. I just think the game has like absolutely gone away from these kind of guys who can't run. Um, I think most teams are trying to play more up-tempo. Um, I'm not saying they can't run. They could run. They just were trailers, right? Um, at, at the other end, no one would have expected Ryan Kelly, Thaddeus Younger, Boris Dio to be a rim protector. Kevin Love is often criticized for his ability to defend in the interior. Uh, it certainly seems as though opponent field goal percentage at the rim is as collected by sport view is a good approximation of an ability as a rim protector. Um, The top five teams in opponent field goal percentage at the rim all had at least 4.7 blocks per game. So, um, and then he just talks about guys who are are good. Um, they don't elevate. They're not, you know, they're not vertically adept. So they don't block shots, but they still deter. Uh, they still deter uh, field goal percentage at the rim. They're great interior defenders. 
Um, again, like I think unless those guys have three point shots, they're they're not really in the game anymore. Um, and I wonder, like this is sort this is definitely pre. I, I tend to think of of Demarcus Cousins as as the main innovator of of the stretch five, right? That's probably not totally correct. I mean, I'd have to go back and like look, but um, and I don't know what year he added the three to his game. The year that George Carl was here. Um, and I don't know what year that was. I'm, I want to guess like 2016, but that could be wrong. But, um, you know, and he never did it to the extent that, like, I think you see the ultimate with with Jokic at this point, right? I mean, and everybody started adding it in is that's what makes it so hard. Now you, I mean, and now you have just like straight stretch fives, but it's not the same thing as having, um having a big like boogie who could take charges, who rotated in and out of the lane, who, you know, um, and for as much shit as DeMarcus gets for being a bad defender, he may not have been like laterally um, acute, but he was, he was good at lane protection, right? I see. So, okay, so then he goes into this whole thing about building, like, draft model prospect evaluating tools. And some of it's really interesting. I, you know, I think, like, on Twitter, there's, like, a number of people who put out, like, those charts that have, like, you know, if you're picking at this position, what percentage chance do you have to get a all-star starter, you know, uh, role player bench player, all that stuff. So this is 2013, it's now 2023, 10 years. There was like a, a more recent chart that was built, I think by Seth Hartnell um, that came out in like 2021. And those percentages um, have not significantly changed. So I'm mildly suspect of all of these different prospect evaluation tools. And I think like he says in here, the thing about evaluating college guys for um, the NBA is there's so many factors that you cannot evaluate. You can't evaluate whether their game translates, whether they uh, whether they fit the team that they're drafted into. You can't, you know, I think teams try to evaluate character with interviews and uh, psychiatrists and all that kind of stuff but you just don't get it right sometimes. Um, and then you can't evaluate durability, you know? Um, and then you have like situations, like I keep, I go back in my head again to Kermit Washington's story where he, he like got drafted into the league and he had always played center and they put him at forward. And he, he was like, excuse me. And he was like, I don't know how to play forward. <laughs> um, and they didn't have, well, I mean, this is way long ago, so maybe it's not so applicable. I mean, now there are, you know, development coaches and all that kind of stuff. Uh, however, they have an interesting um, technique here. Uh, so certain characteristics of that player, which college production only indirectly assessed, must be considered. What is the player's character? What is his work ethic? 
Uh, does this game translate to the NBA? Does the player have a size and athleticism to play his position in the pros? Um, and that's this is the one I always get wrong. Is I, I have a really hard time judging, like, again, the situation is opponent, right? So how do you judge an individual on the opponents that they're going to play? Um, they're generally correct, but occasionally wrong. I would say more than occasionally. Uh, so let's see. So they take basically 10 games out of everybody's. Um, it talks about like Paul George versus Ekpe Udo. Um, so he uses their talks about using like a regression model where you just look at their stats and say that there's going to be some translation to the NBA, right? They use a different model where they take like 10 games per player and, um, and evaluate from there because there's supposedly like less outlying data. Um, statistical concern with regression in this context. Regressions need a dependent variable. For these draft models, the dependent variable is an approximation of MBA performance or success. So um, and then they talk, this is where they talk about like the consistency. So Chris Paul's inconsistency carried over into his rookie NBA season. And then his consistency is gradually like gradually gone up and up and up and up. I bet it's on the downslope at this point. Um, we have to know if consistency is one of those traits that players can improve on as they mature and develop in the NBA. So, um, and then I, they tie use, usage to efficiency and consistency as well. Um, so that's, that's, you know, situationally like opportunity, um, and that the question is whether an NBA team wants the player that consistently scores between 12 and 18 points, or do they want the player that occasionally puts up 30, but follows up that performance with a pedestrian eight points on the next night. So they make the point here that you want the guy who scores 30, um, because consistency goes up, right? Um, additionally, I would say that like in a situation like the old Spurs teams and like the, the Kings team this year, the more guys that you have that are capable of scoring 30 on any given night is great because you don't need the same person to do it. So like if you look at all of the top scorers for the Kings this year, De'Aaron was the top scorer in like 50% of the games. Then it's just everyone else, like basically, except for Davion, but everyone else basically had a high scoring game. At least one, two, three, you know. Um, and so again, that's harder to guard. It's harder to game plan for. Um, and it, it speaks to your depth. Um, so I think that's one thing to consider. And the point that they're making here is that, is that capability will we'll get better uh, with development, right? So, um, and then he talks a lot about the sample size, the um, 
shows a superpower start with very inconsistent production. So um, I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, let's see. Average the player's top 10 game performance. Uh, number 10 is not so important. Uh, so, and again, they use a really interesting, so I think like athleticism is often uh, spoken about, you know, or written about without definition. So like, especially around the draft, like I think people start using athleticism as like a word to describe like guys' measurements sometimes, like their vert and stuff like that, which those measurements are kind of stupid in my opinion. I mean, some things maybe matter like wingspan or whatever, you know, I mean, how much room can you take up on the floor? But some of it's just misleading. I mean, I, I think you can go and like look up guys, you know, highest, the highest vert measure, you know, and a lot was made about Julius Irving's hands, how gigantic his hands are, right? And how he could palm a basketball. Um, so is that good to know? Yeah. Does it tell you anything about his basketball um, skills on the floor? No, not really. Um, so they're, they're saying applied athleticism statistics. So these are offensive rebounding blocks and steals. So this is, uh, as far as we can tell, me and Kashigi, <laughs> um, Kashigi tracks this like every workout that the Kings have in pre-draft. He'll go and look up at least their blocks and their steals. And this is that stocks cult that has been really popular, um, I think, as a draft model for a lot of teams. Um, and I think there's other elements that I don't actually know. I mean, I think every team probably has their own model. But definitely Monty McNair uh, drafts guys with high blocks and steals. Um, so and they're, they're making the case that these hustle stats indicate athleticism and they pre he previously made the point that again blocks indicate a, a high effective field goal deterrence um and steals a high um defensive iq right so i found that fascinating um let me see one of the greatest mistakes in statistical analysis for the masses is the over-reliance on averages. Taking the average of a sample is just one way to aggregate the data. I think that's really true. It's like we say, oh, he gets 25 points a game. Like, okay, did he get 50 points and then two points? And then, um, you know, it's just an interesting. Um, so they do this, this college prospect rating. That's their model that they come up with. Um, and then talk about like the types of athleticism. Like it's great if you can jump out of the building. Can you dunk the basketball while jumping out of the building? Um, can you rim run? You know, can you pass the ball? Um, like be good at, again, Pete Carell, sorry to go back to all these authors that we've read, but Pete Carell, be good at the things that happen all the time, dribbling, passing, shooting, you know? Um, and then he, he says they use a slightly different metric uh, to 
for certain players where they use season three point percentage and, and free throw percentage. Uh, let's see. And, you know, obviously sample size matters. So we aren't equating two players that shot 35% on threes when one took 20 and one took 150. Uh, let's see here. And he says, you know, he thinks that age really matters in drafting. Uh, I disagree to a certain extent because I think like, and maybe I disagree because I like the Kings draft pick so much in the Monty McNair era um, where he's been drafting like older guys and <clears throat> higher class level classmen. Um, and it's because of this word right here, potential, right? Potential is always an unknown. And I just think getting guys with, with a higher floor um, is always the right choice um, because you'd never know where the ceiling is. I mean, and I think you can like take a lot of anecdotal kind of, you know, Jokic, Giannis, like nobody knew those guys were going to be those guys. Um, even Steph, like nobody knew that. Otherwise they would have taken all those guys number one, right? Um, It just talks about like a lot of number crunching here, how to value these different things. I think some of this gets kind of into the weeds. Um, again, because it, like how, how do you win a basketball game? You outscore the other team. You know, either you outscore them or you prevent them from outscoring you. Uh, and most often it's that you outscore them. Um, so dominant performance as a shooter, athlete, or playmaker indicates pro potential. We leave it to the teams to decide the type of prospect they want to draft. So they, that's so fit. Um, weigh all statistics the same. We simply add the standard statistics for each player. And then obviously none of these statistics, um, you know, like I said, none of them evaluate durability really. Uh, I mean, you could say, you could say that a shortened season, if you play five games in college, that's a good indicator, right? If you're, I would say like somebody like Marvin Bagley, who didn't play like a full college season and who needed the team scheme to change when he was around him, that's like a good indicator of somebody who is not going to be a great fit with every team, right? Um, and, uh, you know, the injury stuff is like so hard. Like you, you look at again, like Bill Walton, you know, he was relatively healthy throughout his college career, but a college season is not an 82 game season with playoffs at the end. Like an 82 game season is just, you cannot evaluate how somebody's body will respond to that level of consistent play, sometimes back to back play um, you just don't know who's gonna, who's gonna be reliable. You know, and I, I think like I, what gets lost sometimes in this conversation too, and why I care so much about it in terms of like trade assets and stuff like that, and how many games guys play. Now, sometimes it's mitigated by teams shutting guys down because 
you know, they're trying to tank or, or whatever it is. Um, but with those kind of situations aside, I would say that that reliability is a part of consistency, right? If a guy does not play a game, then his consistency per game is takes a massive hit because he's he's doing zero in that game. Uh, so so sorry, this is a little scattered. I my like six person audience hopefully finds this stuff interesting enough that. Uh, um, yeah, so we're at the, almost at the end of the book and, um, I've gone like a lot longer than I meant to, of course. Um, I, again, like I found this book really fascinating. I think it's like the vernacular of it is entrenched in NBA groupthink at this point. So I don't think any of these concepts are like challenging or like it was, I took me four days to read it or something like that. Um, and the whole sport view part of it was completely fascinating. I do believe that they have like um, rolled out new statistics based on sport. Like I think I keep thinking of screen assists as like, you know, something that was like a really fashionable kind of like cited statistic, you know, a couple years ago. Um, so those kind of things are tracked by sport view, right? Um, so in this book, we've run studies on game strategy, evaluated player performance, better classified player types, and quantified prospect potential. In some cases, the results are astounding. Uh, and then this this is the modern game, essentially, right? I think, like I said, I think mid-range is getting added back in. Driving efficiency and the use of corner threes are highly predictive of overall offensive efficiency. Um, the one thing that I didn't, there was a guy who built like an entirely new uh, player classification system. I'm not going to go back and like find um, in the thread, but this thread is up on my Twitter. So you, you just search for this book and, and it'll come up. But uh, he talks about this guy who built like a new player classification model that essentially like broke players out into their skill sets. So instead of saying like point guard, they he would say like um, passing, um, you know, facilitating, like break it down by exact skill sets. And he had like 35 classifications. And uh, I think that is useful to a certain extent. I've really appreciated like reading the Sasha Vezenkov articles that um, that constantly call him a stretch power forward or a power stretch forward. Uh, but I don't think 35 classifications is totally necessary. Um, but I do think that it's a lot more common to talk about players as like, as their primary skill, like rim protectors, playmakers. Um, and that's probably a good thing. Um, and I have, I'll just, I'll show down here. So let me get through to the very end of the book here. Um, and you know, this kind of, this has evolved. The best defenses begin with elite rim protectors. After that teams should look for players that can get out and challenge the three. Um, Indiana built an analyst dream defense with Hibbert in the middle and athletic long wings like Paul George, Lance Stevenson on the perimeter. I still think this is the model that most teams try to chase, but I also think that there has been some innovation made in like lane protection, um, 
you know, gap defense, um, that kind of thing, especially with like Golden State. And it's sort of what the Kings tried to do without a rim protector this year. Um, you know, now their exact rating on defense obviously is suspect, but they're, like I said before, I think the, the league is becoming more and more of a, um, a timely defense situation. So, um, you know, I mean, I, like, I think the Kings had fantastic clutch defense, right? And, um, you know, I don't have numbers to back that up in this thread or anything like that, but anyone who watched the team could probably, could probably guess the same. So evolution, evaluation, estimation. So um, analytics can help a team decide on the types of offensive plays and defensive formations that they want to implement. Analytics can find the types of players that are best suited to play in the offensive and defensive systems. Analytics can evaluate how well these players perform in their roles. With that information alone, a team could come to the realization that their offensive and defensive formations are suboptimal and that the players currently on their roster are not the most capable of implementing better game strategies. Now, what should they do? So team building. Um, first, we should not rely too heavily on what has happened with past draft classes to try and predict what will happen with future draft classes. The NBA is changing with it, the types of players that will succeed, especially like in 2013. I think it's really on the cusp of this three-point shooting. And then the fact that the three-point line is a different distance. I know. I think a lot got made of that, that maybe has not been as um, challenging for players to, you know, adapt to that distance, but it may take like half a season or a season. And as anyone who's on Twitter knows, like fans are not patient with that sort of thing. Um, NBA is changing with the types of players that will succeed. Um, instead, we should use advanced analytics to inform us as to what combination of skills in a player are essential to success in the current and future projected NBA. So great book. He, he also talks in here uh, when he's talking about some of like the civilian um, analytic groups. And he talks about the Kings uh, bringing in, two, I think it was in 2014. Um and I have the video in here too. Then they brought in sort of like a civilian uh, group to crowdsource their NBA draft pick. And it's cool. It's cool to watch the video of it. It resulted in Nick Stauskas. So a uh, grain of salt. I don't think they've done it since then, but it's just kind of an interesting, you know, little read and stuff. And then, um, Big Roar Dog, you know, who is like way more into this stuff than I am. I think he crunches, you know, a ton of his own numbers and keeps a bunch of spreadsheets, you know, and stuff like that. But uh, this was another really good. Grantland has so much old good information. I guess I'm like starting to appreciate Bill Simmons more than I have in the past, just because he has so much impact on um, basketball thought. Um, like I said, most of the links are broken. I'm not sure what I was trying to get with here. Oh, I, how many threes, three pointers made. 
and uh, and then this is the Wikipedia description of support view, which talks about like all the different cameras and stuff, which she doesn't do in here. So I thought it was interesting. Let me see if I can find. I don't think I can play the video anyways, but it's in here somewhere. One of these stupid. Anyways, the um, the um, oh, and I was hoping I also put. Oh, here it is. There's the video, which is funny to watch. It's funny to see who's in the room. It's like Pete D'Alessandro and he, um, and then this is, hopefully I'm not, I'm just like sampling. This is Brandon Podziemski's um, eval from the No Ceilings Draft Guide. And I just wanted to show it because I think it's really interesting because they incorporate a lot of what this book talks about as far as like, um, you know, showing the different skill sets, comparing it to player skill sets rather than to just singular players. Um, and then shot chart, you know, and the PPP stuff is all here, which is the really good draft guide, by the way. And it's like 10, 10 bucks. So that's, that's probably it. I'm sorry to be solo. I, didn't hit record in the spaces. Um, I'm hoping this captured sound so I don't have to do it again. Uh, and our, our, we've decided to reread um, uh, the Jerry Reynolds, Reynolds Remembers, or it's also called Sacramento, uh, or Tales from the Sacramento King's Locker Room, I think. Um, and we're going to do that for next time. I needed a little break. Um, and I also, uh, and Kevin didn't get to read that one. So anyways, um, thanks so much for listening, for geeking out on this stuff, if you are. And um, feel free to, you know, leave me comments, suggestions, messages, or join the spaces um, and contribute to the conversation. Hopefully they are not usually just me talking because that's boring. All right, cool.